God, Lord, to the souls that are here, to the souls listening online, Lord, and I pray that, Lord, these things can set souls free, Lord, that it can draw hearts to you, and Lord, that you might be glorified in all things. And Lord, I ask it all now in that precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 God is good, isn't he? I love how he can come in and just stir your spirit and encourage you. Amen. There's something beautiful about singing. He sits among the praises of his people. And they asked uh, Elisha to come preach. The king asked Elisha, come uh, give me a word from the Lord. And Elisha came in and he said, send me some minstrels first. And he, he sat there and he, there's something about the music, a good song, uh, some praises that it just stirs the spirit and lets things flow in a better way. I thank God for that. And it's good to be here with you all and just be back together. I'm glad for each of you that is here tonight and also the ones listening online. God bless you out there. And God's been so good to us this past week. And I just pass a greeting again from some of the other brothers in the other churches. I had a chance to talk to Brother Simon in Kenya this week, and he's really a wonderful brother. He's one of the few that puts uh, his messages online. Most of them are kind of like us and are still maybe a little under a rock in some ways. <laughs> Amen. But uh, his, he does put some messages online. He is just a wonderful brother. And there's really a great move of the Spirit going on over there in Kenya. I know Robert's over in Kenya now. I've heard that. So just keep praying for him and his little his mission trip and that he'll bless souls. And You know, I, I believe God is truly moving and doing a work. There are People coming together who want to put Jesus first. And that just makes my heart rejoice. When people put Jesus first, amazing things happen. And when we get to the place where Jesus is really taking first place, first place in our lives, first place in our affections, first place in our preaching, first place in our churches, when Jesus is in first place, we're going to see amazing things happen. And I believe we're already seeing some amazing things. We're already seeing souls being set free. We're already seeing miracles happening. I know, Brother Jesse, that miracle you talked about this morning, that's an amazing miracle. You know, God, he's bearing witness of something if people are willing to look. Amen. Amen. And I think of my own father here this past week. You know, it was a miracle. A miracle. You know, the doctor was so shocked, he was so surprised by the miracle that he went out into the waiting room and he told everyone sitting in the waiting room it was a miracle. He went out into the parking lot and he told people in the parking lot it was a miracle. The doctor was so amazed by what happened. He went around telling people that he saw a miracle. Amen. You know, that's, a, that's pretty powerful when the doctor's so convinced. And he goes around telling everybody that, he, that, that listen, it was a miracle. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You know, God is with us. God is with us. You know, if we maybe was to think up the street a little bit from where we came from, you know, death is reigning in some of those places. They're having a funeral every week there for quite a long while. The truth of them is a number of them are, are already... Dead today, and a lot of it has to do with the actions of certain preachers even. Preacher of death, but you know, thank God, we have a life here today. And God is working miracles. Amen. You know, and as it is in His will, He'll continue to do miracles among us. I believe it. You know, I, I listened to one thing 
Yeah, I should say I've not listened to one thing, really, that some people have had to say since I left. You know, but I'm sure by this point, most all of us here are supposed to have done been struck by lightning. (laughs) Living in a poor house, dying of cancer, and every other bad thing under the sun. I'm sure that's (laughs) some people's version of what should be happening. But to tell you the truth, you and I know better than that, don't we? Amen. God has been with us. Amen. We're doing better than ever, ever, praise the Lord. I've seen more real miracles this past week, I think, than I saw in the past ten years, maybe from that place we came from. Mm -hmm. God is with us, and he's making sure that we know it. Amen. Hallelujah. We don't need uh, the fake miracles that some people cook up. we got the real thing going on in the presence of the Lord. Amen. And I've got just a little message tonight picking back up the story where I left off last time I was preaching. and It's been a little while, so maybe you don't remember. <laughs> yeah, vacation. <laughs> How, yeah, I know. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, I'll just remind us a little bit. I've been looking at the footprints of Jesus yeah. leading up to the cross. <laughs> and I started you know, looking at the character of Judas and, and the events leading up to that betrayal. Then last time we looked at uh, the Garden of Gethsemane and just what Jesus experienced there, that great agonizing turmoil of the emotions that he endured. And we're just going to pick up tonight as we start moving towards looking at his trial specifically. And if you'd like to turn your Bibles with me, I'm going to pick up in John chapter 18. And there's very many verses about the trial of Jesus in the gospel. And each of the writers recorded different unique details. And so we will maybe jump around just a little bit because I want to try and get each of the aspects of that trial into the message. And, you know, there's many avenues we could take in looking at these verses. We could look at Jesus through it all and how he handled himself. Or we could look at the disciples and we could put ourselves in their shoes as those things are going on. We could look at the prophecies and the types that were being fulfilled and all the significance of those things. There's quite a few different aspects we could spend a whole lot of time looking at and examining. I think, truthfully, we could spend easily four or five messages just looking at the trial of Christ. But Lord willing, I'm going to try and just get most of what I want to look at here tonight in this message. And I won't quite get everything I want to look at. I'll save a little for next time. But my main focus tonight is going to be looking at the character of the men involved in the trial of Jesus, especially the religious leaders. What kind of men were they? And what can we learn about their character from the things that they say? How did they put together the plot to kill Jesus? What were their motivations? What tactics did they use? And what does that tell us about them? And so as we start reading here in John 18, verse 3, we'll, we'll just start to examine some of these things. John 18, verse 3, Judas then having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. They've come in the dark to capture the light of the world. They've come with weapons to take violently the prince of peace. And Jesus, he could have scorched the earth. He could have called down fire from heaven and consumed them right there. But what did he do instead? Verse 4, Jesus, therefore knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth 
and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon as he had said that unto them, I am he, they went backward and they fell to the ground. The power of God knocked every last one of them off of their feet. Here a small army had come to arrest Jesus. And with, with just a few words, every one of them had their feet knocked out from under him. That was the power that Jesus had. That was the power that was in him. And as Jesus had told Pilate, he'd said, You have no power over me except it is given to you. Jesus could have called 12 legions of angels, but he chose to go with these men. He allowed himself to be arrested. And through this trial and this crucifixion, many times the scripture might cause us to think that Jesus was a helpless man. But Jesus was never a helpless victim at any point through this process. At every verse and every chapter and every point, Jesus was the Lord of glory. And he suffered all of these things. He went through all of these things willingly for you and me, for our sakes. Let me continue. Verse 7. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. They got back up off their feet, right? You know, that should have told them something right there, that they had to all get back up off their seat, feet. Jesus answered, I've told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake of them which thou gavest me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword unto the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Then the band and the captain and the officers of the Jews took Jesus and they bound him. And now Jesus is all alone as far as his friends are concerned. But he had told them, if we just went back, I think, one chapter here, maybe two, in John, he said, you're all going to run away and you're going to leave me alone, but I won't be alone. The Father's still going to be with me. Jesus is alone, but the Father is still with him as he's arrested and as he's taken away for trial. And this whole trial, it starts with a man named Annas. And when we get down to verse 13, we, we first read about him. It says here, And they led away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now if you read history, you'll find out that Annas was the old high priest. Several years before this had happened, Annas had got in trouble with the Romans. He said the wrong things, he acted the wrong way, and the Romans had forced Annas to resign as high priest. It was that or his neck. <laughs> he chose the resignation. And, you know, he no longer had the title of high priest at this point that Jesus is arrested. But as we can see in this trial of Jesus, Annas is still the man wielding the power behind the scenes. And this is our first little clue into the character of these men that we're looking at tonight. There is a figure in the shadows. Yeah. Someone pulling strings 
behind the curtains. Caiaphas was the high priest in name. He's the man who got up in front of the people. He's the leader everyone was looking at. He was the one wearing the high priestly garments. He was playing the part of the high priest. But this man, Annas, he's the real power. He's the one running the show. The public thought Caiaphas was running the show. The Romans thought Caiaphas was running the show. But they were fooled. Annas is the man pulling the strings here. He's the man with his hands on the levers of power. Amen. And when they arrest Jesus, where did they take him first? To Annas. To the man who's running the show. Verse 13, And they led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. We'll jump down to verse 19, skip a few verses here, but Lord willing, we might look at some of these verses we're skipping here next time with the disciples. But in verse 9, it says, The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort. And in secret have I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. Jesus here gives a pretty straightforward answer to the questions. He preached to them all. They'd all heard him preach. They saw what kind of life Jesus had lived, right? They knew that they really couldn't lay a finger on his life. He'd never really done a single thing that they could truly lay a finger on. They knew what kind of man he was. They knew what he believed. His testimony and his faith had been on full display for all the people to see for all these years. And you then wonder, why are they even asking Jesus these kind of questions? Right? Where are these questions coming from towards Jesus? And we realize they're not asking Jesus out of any kind of a genuine interest for a real answer. There's no true curiosity in them about what he believes there's no desire actually to understand what he's saying or what he's doing. They're asking these questions because they're looking for an excuse to get rid of him. They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to get him to say something they can use to justify themselves and what they've done. And they've been trying over and over and over to draw Jesus into a trap. They've been critical of him and his ministry for years at this point. And if we went back into the earlier chapters, we could read how they had plotted. They hated Jesus. They hated him because he was kind. They hated him because he upstaged them. They hated him because people loved him more than them. They hated him because his message set people free and they were losing control. And they were looking for a way to get rid of him. Because they wanted to keep the people under their control. They wanted to rule people's lives themselves rather than let God rule their lives. And that's the motive that's behind their questions. That's the plot and the motive behind what they're doing to Jesus. And when people have a wicked motive, you know, you really have no obligation to answer any of their questions. You know, Brother George's talked about boundaries a few times. He preached a message on it even there. 
Jesus did not owe these people an explanation. He had no obligation to answer any of their questions. You know, and we likewise have no obligation to go along with people who are out to hurt and destroy us. God have mercy on their wicked souls. We can be just like Jesus and ignore them. That is not a sin. It is our right as a child of God, the same right that Jesus Christ himself exercised while he was here. These wicked men have already decided what they are going to do to Jesus before he ever came into that room with them. And what they're doing in this trial of Jesus is just an attempt to legitimize their evil. You and I have no obligation to help people legitimize their evil deeds. We have the same rights as Jesus. We have a right to protest evil by refusing to cooperate with the plots of wicked men. But don't be surprised when you refuse to cooperate, they start hitting you. (laughs) Because that's exactly what's going to happen to Jesus when he refuses to cooperate. Look at verse 22. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Now here's the thing. Jesus had not spoken a single word to the high priest. The high priest was not even there in that room. As we read verse 24, that's very clear to us. Jesus was talking to Annas, the high priest's father-in-law. So just catch it. This man who slaps Jesus is, is also lying to him, really. These men are dishonest. They're carrying on a charade. They're lying from the moment that they start talking to Jesus. Annas is pretending to be something he is not. These men are giving Annas a respect and authority that he no longer has any right to whatsoever. And they slap Jesus because he's not going along with their charade. Annas has not been the high priest for years. But we see here him still acting and going on as though he is in charge. He's the one who sent these men to arrest Jesus. That's why they brought him back to his house. Annas is at the heart of this plot against Jesus. And so there's three things I just want to make sure we notice here in verse 22. They're hitting Jesus because he's refused to cooperate with them. And they're lying to Jesus about who the high priest is. And what they're saying gives us a glimpse into the corrupt politics that's going on among the leaders in Jerusalem. There's a deception going on over who is in charge. And these verses demonstrate to us Annas is the figure in the shadows. Their leadership at the highest levels is carrying on a deception. Amen. And they slap Jesus. They're angry that he won't go along with their charade. And Jesus responds to them here in verse 23. Jesus answered and said, answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? You know, they may not have liked what Jesus said, but it was true. And you notice here they make no attempt even to respond to what Jesus says. They don't even care. They just ignore his words and they keep moving forward with their evil plot. They're not going to be derailed. That's how evil men are. 
They don't care what you say. They just want you gone. Right. And Jesus is there. He's not running away. He's prepared even to let them kill them, kill him. But that's not enough for them. It's not enough that Jesus is here going to let them kill him. They want him to participate in their charade. They want him to legitimize what they are doing. You see that? And that in itself is, is just another level of evil. It's not enough for them that he just quietly goes along with their plot to destroy him. They want him to tell them, it's okay what you're doing to me. You're right. They want him to legitimize what they are doing. In verse 24 it says, Now Annas sent him bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest. And verse 24 tells that story there. Caiaphas was not there. Annas, Annas is the one he's talking to, and now Annas is going to send him to the real high priest, to Caiaphas. Annas is exercising a power and an authority that he has no right to. You know, and that in itself is a sin. Pretending to be something you are not, that comes from a prideful heart, you know it? And pride in that form that would lead us to exercise authority and rights or pretend to be something we're not, that is certainly a sin. And there's a lot of people in the world today, they're pretending to be something that they are not. I'm high priest so-and-so. I am prophet so-and-so. I'm apostle so-and-so. And they'll seek to kill and destroy any people who will not go along with their charade. But Jesus, he told the Ephesian church, he said, you have tried those who claim to be apostles and you found them to be liars. And there are men who claim to be a whole lot of things today, but in the end, sometimes they've just turned out to have been liars. And we don't owe those liars anything more than Jesus owed this liar Annas. He called himself a high priest. He can call himself a high priest all he wants, but Annas was no high priest. And he knew it, and Jesus knew it. Amen? Turn over to Matthew 26, and we'll, we'll see what happens after Jesus gets sent from Annas to Caiaphas. And again, keep in mind, I'm just mainly focusing on the character of these wicked men. I want us to see how they operate. I want us to see their methods. And I want us to think about their character. Matthew 26 starting at verse 57. And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Now in these verses we start to see how deep this conspiracy against Jesus goes. It was all planned out. The council was already there waiting. Somehow... Before Jesus was even arrested, they already knew there was going to be a trial. Jesus had been accused in secret. He had been arrested in secret. And his verdict had already been determined in secret before he ever even enters this room. And that in itself is another evil and ungodly sin. The fact that they had plotted behind the scenes... The fact that they had already planned out everything they were going to do before Jesus ever came into that room, that itself is a wicked sin. A heart that devises wicked plans. That is an abomination 
to the Lord. Proverbs 6. And when you ever get around people like that, plotters, people trying to draw you into a plot against someone, plotting out an evil plan, working on people behind the scenes, that is the product of an evil heart. There's nothing righteous or godly about that. That is a tactic of Satan. And anyone, and God don't care if it is the high priest himself, anyone who does something like that is acting wickedly. And that is exactly what these men were doing to Jesus. So recognize this. The fact that all these men were already in this room waiting for Jesus, knowing all of these things in advance, willing to go along with the plot, shows that there's something very badly wrong. Every single one of those men have compromised with evil the moment they walked into that room and sat down. And any other group of people who operates the way that these men operated, they are putting themselves into the same category of people as the wicked and the ungodly men who murdered Jesus. Amen. Verse 59 says, Now the chief priests and the elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. Let me read that again. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. That is quite a verse. There is so much wrong with that verse. It, It just drips with slime. They sought false witness to put him to death. You realize how backwards that is? You know, in our courts today, you have a a trial first and a verdict second, right? But they already got the verdict here first. And they're going to have the trial second. It's backwards. And it's backwards in an evil way. It's backwards in a way that makes a mockery of justice. It's backwards in a way that makes a mockery of common decency. The thing that they are doing, they're just trying to make this thing look legitimate. That's all. But really, this thing is a perversion of justice. It's a perversion of righteous judgment. And you have to be a pretty evil judge to have a verdict before there's even a trial, right? You have to be pretty evil to judge someone without even giving any consideration to the defense. In fact... You just about have to be as devilish as these murderers of Jesus to operate that way. And the Bible says he who judges a matter before he checks out the whole story, to him it's a shame and what a sin. See that in Proverbs 18. So make no mistake about it. It is nothing but wickedness and sin to behave in a form and manner that these men are behaving. They do not have a scriptural leg to stand on for what they are doing here. Amen? There's nothing appropriate. There's nothing scriptural. There's nothing godly about this form and method that they're following. Maybe you think about it. Have you ever been in a situation where you're called before an evil judge who hands down judgment and verdict and they never even bothered to have a fair look into things? They never even bothered to say, why did you do that? Judgment is handed down without investigation or trial. 
They don't even have the common courtesy to pick up the phone and say, hey, tell me about this. I've been in that kind of thing. And I've seen evil men carry out that kind of judgment. Over and over and over and over. And I want you to know that is of the devil. And people who operate that way are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. I don't care who they are. Because that is not the way God instructed the church to judge those matters. It's not the way he instructed Israel to judge those matters. And the Spirit of God will not lead men to judge manners in a way that violates his own word. Of course not. Men and judges who operate in that way, they would fit in right here with the murderers of Jesus. They have a verdict to hand down before they've even talked to you. God have mercy on wicked and ungodly men who do such things. No man is above the word of God. And when they start acting that way, like these priests are acting, like the Pope of Rome (laughs) acts, you know, they forfeited a right to a position at that point. These priests have forfeited all right to be servants of God with what they've done here. No believer is ever going to have to listen to these men ever again. Amen. Because they have condemned the innocent and the holy one. That's right. And we don't need to obey men who act like this any more than we need to obey the Pope of Rome. Right. Amen. Because that is exactly who these men Amen. are acting like. That's true. And when men have determined in their heart to do things like this, you know, there's really nothing at all that you can do about it. Yeah. All you can do is what Jesus did. Stand back and let their evil deeds reveal them for who they are. Let their wicked deeds bear witness of the blackness that is in their hearts. They perverted justice, having a verdict before trial. And that's only one of the slimy aspects here of verse 59. Look here. Let me read it again. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. There's a word in there that's important to catch, and it's the word sought. 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 That's a verb. That's something you actively do. They sought false witness. They knew what they were doing, and they did it on purpose. And you know, and I, I puzzle in myself just a little bit about how you even do that. How do you do that? I mean, procedurally. Technically, how do you pull something like that off? And I guess maybe I have such an innocent mind, it's hard to me to comprehend how you would even go about advertising for false witnesses. How do you look for a false witness? I mean, do do you hang a sign out, false witnesses wanted? I mean, how do you do that? That's what I'm saying. How do you do that? How do you do that? Somehow they had to advertise what they were looking for. It says they sought them. Somehow they were advertising what they were looking for. Someone had to be whispering behind the scenes. This is what we're looking for. We need something like this. Can someone find us something like this? Someone was looking for false accusations they could use to get rid of Jesus. And you just got to wonder, how did they do it? They did something, though, to find these people out. Somehow they said, we need dirt on Jesus. They were out looking for dirt so they could get rid of him. 
you know that is also a sin? That is also a sin. Amen? And verse 59 really brings home to us just how corrupt this whole plot against Jesus is. It brings home to us just how evil these men are in their hearts. You can't have decency inside you and act like these men. Destroying the life of an innocent person means nothing to them. Nothing. And they have no problem using every dirty trick in the book to do it. They have no problem abusing their power to do it. They have no problem perverting justice to do it. They are utterly corrupt. And their actions bear witness to what is in their souls. And it's something that is black and ugly. Something that could only be washed away and cleansed away by the very man they are in the process of destroying. Boy, that makes you sad for them almost. If they knew the promise of God and who it was that stood before them, they would have asked of him for living water and they would have never thirsted again. But instead, through their wickedness, they forfeit all hope of salvation. They jumped head first into the pit of hell. And before they're finished, these men are going to drag every single person they can along with them. That's right. Verse 59 again. Now the chief priests and the elders and the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses. So they they went through all of these false witnesses. Somehow they they went through, how many did they go through? It says many. It says there were many. It gives you a sense that maybe you you put it maybe into pictorial form. You know, maybe they they waded out into that great gossip swamp, right? (laughs) And they called out to all of the slimy creatures that live in that gossipy swamp. The frogs and the snakes and the lizards and all of those slimy things that live in a gossip swamp. You know that land of gossip? It is a slimy, filthy place. And if you want to go somewhere that will defile you, the great gossip, that great gossip swamp is surely a place that will do it. Amen. And these wicked men, they had to go in there with all of these slimy characters and find just the right one How many do they have to pet? How many frogs? How many slimy frogs? How many slimy snakes? How many slimy lizards do they have to pet until they found the one that would give them what they were looking for? My. But they did. Right there in verse 61. And said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Now, you know, Jesus did say something like that, didn't he? And you know, when Jesus had that conversation, you know, he was speaking privately with his apostles when that happened. Mm-hmm. That was a private conversation. <coughs> but somebody was eavesdropping on Jesus' private conversation in order to be able to repeat this thing that he said. 
You know, and one of the things I've, I've wondered about, as I've read the trial of Jesus here, you know, we read those verses where Jesus said, everything I have taught, I taught openly and hid nothing. You remember that? We just read that. But you think back, how many times did Jesus tell the apostles certain things, and when he got done, he said, now keep this to yourself and tell no man. There were things that Jesus preached publicly. But then there were things Jesus also just told to his closest friends privately. Things he did not preach openly. Because you know not, some things are maybe not to be preached. Some things are a private matter. And this thing here that they're using against Jesus, this was a private matter. This was a private conversation. They're taking something that he said to his friends in private. Something that has nothing to do with any of them. And they're going to use that to destroy Jesus. Amen? He was saying something about their temple that they love so much. Something that when they hear it, it rocks them to their very core because it's an attack on the core of their religion, they believe. Oh, the temple cannot be destroyed. They didn't even understand what Jesus was talking about. And you know, as individuals, we have private lives. We have public lives. Jesus had a public ministry, but he also had private relationships with his friends. I want to ask you a question. Was it fair for these men to condemn Jesus for something he said privately to his friends? I would actually tell you that these eavesdroppers were sinners. To use someone's private words to destroy them? That's a wicked person that does a thing like that. Those are people you cannot trust. People who will listen in on other people's conversations just to find some juicy gossip to repeat. They are sinners. They are sinners, and that is a sin. And people who betray confidence, that's a sin too, you know that? It's a sin to betray confidence. It's called faithlessness. That's that's a work of the flesh. Yeah. The opposite of righteousness. You know, and anyone who's done those kind of things, anyone who has participated in those kind of things, you know, if you don't know it, I want you to know it, you have sinned. You have sinned. And the men that led you down that path to do things like that, they were sinners too. And that sin was against God. And it was also a sin against whatever person that you did those things to. You know that? Shame on you. Shame on them. Shame on anyone who would act like the murderers of Jesus. And especially when you realize that these witnesses here did not even tell the truth about what Jesus said. Because if you notice, Jesus never actually said the words that they said he said. They're twisting what Jesus said. This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. That's not what Jesus said. It's different enough that the apostles are justified later on in the book of Acts saying, these were false witnesses. They were lying to you. These people were misleading others about what Jesus said. And false witnesses will do that. They'll make a lie. They'll sprinkle it with a little truth. And that's enough to fool some people. And it's a shame. It's a real shame. But Jesus here, he knows that these men are telling lies. And of course, these priests and these elders, they know that they're telling lies too. Because they were the ones out seeking 
the false witness. And you know, maybe people on the outside don't recognize all this, but Jesus knows absolutely this is what's going on. Jesus is the one being accused. He knows absolutely these are false witnesses. He knows absolutely that these men are doing a corrupt thing. He knows it. It's not hid from him. And once again, what happens? They get angry when Jesus does not cooperate. He is silently protesting their evil through this whole process. He's letting their actions show everyone just what kind of people they are. And once again, they get angry because he does not play along. They're angry that he won't go along with their travesty of justice. They're angry that he won't acknowledge the legitimacy of what they're doing. He don't want to do anything to grant them credibility. And look here how they react to his silent refusal to go along. Verse 62, And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? Give us the details, Jesus. These men have made some disturbing accusations against you. What's all this about? Tell us the details. We have a right to know about this conversation you had privately with the apostles. What? Jesus is still quiet. He's letting them do their thing. He's letting them go but they're not going to leave Jesus alone. They keep coming after him, trying to get him to talk, trying to get him to say something that they can use against against him. And their utter dishonesty is on display in this verse. These men are not interested in what Jesus has to say. They are not interested in an explanation. They are only interested in getting to their verdict only interested in trying to make this thing look legitimate so they can fool as many people as possible. The truth does not matter to Caiaphas. All that matters is that they make Jesus look bad before they kill him. These are evil men. These are the kind of things that can only come out of an evil heart. And it only takes a few evil hearts to drag everyone else along with them. But Jesus is having no part of it. Verse 63. But Jesus held his peace, still not speaking. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of the living God. And here at last, Jesus finally speaks something to them. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, Now ye have heard his blasphemy. My, my. It's an incredible thing in these verses. And it proves they're not interested in any explanation Jesus may give. They're just looking for something to use, a tool. And it never even crossed the high priest's mind 
that Jesus could be telling him the truth. You know, and that's how it is. Some men's minds are so dark, they're so deluded by the system that they are in, that no amount of truth is ever going to change their mind. Their hearts are so full of the sin of pride that they would never even consider the possibility that they could be wrong. The thought that Jesus could be telling them the truth is so far outside the realm of their thinking, it's not even a consideration. It's not even a possibility to these men. Because if what Jesus is saying is true, it's going to upend their lives. And they can't handle that. They don't even want to consider that Jesus is telling them the truth. And you see the absolute rage they react with when they hear the truth. Jesus' words cut so deep into the false beliefs of these wicked men. It cuts so deep into their corrupt desires that they cannot even for a second consider the possibility that he is telling them the truth. So they rip their clothes. They put their fingers in their ears. Blasphemy, blasphemy, blasphemy. (laughs) And you know when people start crying out blasphemy, when people start calling the truth blasphemy, there's just not a whole lot you can do for them. You know that? Their mind is too warped. They're so far down a path of wrong thinking, there's just nothing you and I could ever do to rescue them. You could lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. They're, they're going to have to choose to pull the fingers out of their ears and open their eyes back up, right? Because as long as they have their eyes and their ears closed, shouting blasphemy as loud as they can, there's no point in even trying to talk to them because they refuse to hear. And they would do the same thing if Jesus Christ himself was there telling them the truth. Because they did the same thing to Jesus Christ when he was there telling them the truth. And look here at verse 66 at what the high priest says. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. That's what the council answered back. He is guilty of death. Why? Because he told them the truth. And they hated it. You know, man will kill and destroy you for telling the truth. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's what happened to Jesus. You know, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the hope. And there is no other. And that's what Jesus was trying to show people. And that today is what we're trying to show people. But men hate that. Because they have things besides Jesus that they want to insert in there. And they'll attack and destroy Jesus and the people who preach Jesus because it is a threat to them. I think of everything Jesus did. The sick who were healed. The poor who were helped. The brokenhearted who were uplifted. So many lives had been helped by Jesus. So many good things had been done. Jesus wanted to be their friend. But they chose to be his enemy. You know, instead of seeing Jesus as someone who was there to try and help them, they just saw Jesus as a threat. A threat to their power. 
a threat to their influence, a threat to their plans. Jesus didn't do a thing to deserve their abuses, their cruelty, their rejection, their death sentence. But they didn't care. They didn't care. For them, it was pure pragmatism. Jesus was in their way, and so they needed to get rid of him. It was them, or it was Jesus. That was their way of thinking. And since they were in the judgment seat, they were going to choose themselves. Why not, right? That's how it is. And so what? They condemned an innocent man. But the truth is, and I'll tell you the truth, the ones they condemned was actually themselves. They're just too proud and blind to realize it. And there's one thing about verse 66 there, and it's something that I've, I've wondered about maybe a little bit. I'll share it with you, as I think maybe it adds another layer of level to the corruption of these men. It says there that the council said, kill Jesus. It doesn't say that a single person in that council rose up to defend Jesus. Not one person. So where was Nicodemus? Where was Joseph of Arimathea? Where were these men on the council who believed in Jesus and trusted on him? I can't believe they sat by and let all this happen, right? I can't believe they just let them condemn Jesus without a word. So I'll tell you what I think. I think they weren't there. These wicked men were careful in who they invited to that council. There were men who had a right to be there, men who had a right to speak in Jesus' defense, and men who would have done so. But they were purposefully excluded from what went on. Caiaphas and Annas, no doubt, had spied around, and they knew who Jesus' friends were. And they were careful not to invite any of them when the decisions were being made. And by the time Nicodemus and Joseph figured out what's going on, it was already too late. And you know, and if that's right, it's just one more indication of how corrupt these leaders were. And I'll say this, you know, I don't know everything. There's things in the Bible that maybe are not quite clear. And I don't feel so bad maybe to talk about it that way. I just make sure I present it to you that way. Maybe it's this way. Maybe it's not. And you're smart people, and you've got the Spirit of God in you the same as I do, right? And you can make up your own minds. Amen? Have you ever heard a preacher tell you that before? Not, <laughs> Not where we come from, that's for sure. They know it all. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the reason they're such a mess, you know it? You know, it's just the preacher's job to tell you the best he knows. Right. And it's our job to think about what he says and let the Spirit of God show us as an individual what to do with it. You know, and as a preacher, I gotta realize that, and I gotta trust God to work in every life as an individual. Because I'm not your God. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> I'm just your friend pointing you to God. And I'm not trying to get between you and Him. Preachers are supposed to respect people's individual relationships with God. And that's actually the very thing that we're supposed to be helping people grow in. But there's a lot of preachers who do the exact opposite, and they end up stunning people's spiritual growth. Instead of teaching people to walk in the Spirit and be dependent on God, they teach you to be dependent on a preacher. But a good preacher is there to point you to God, not to point you to themselves. 
And any preacher who does that points to themselves all the time. You need to run away from them. He who speaks of himself, he seeks his own glory, right? I don't ever want to be in that category. But any rate, I wonder about Nicodemus and Joseph, just where they were when all this was going on. And if I had to guess, I'd say they had been left out on purpose. And if you have a better thought, well, you're entitled to it. God bless you. <laughs> but getting back to this message here, these corrupt leaders had stacked the deck at every level before this thing ever began. You know that? And corrupt is the right word to use for people who behave this way. There's absolutely nothing godly or righteous or appropriate about the way that this thing was done. It was a seek-and-destroy mission, and this trial was done just to give it all a cloak of righteousness. And you know, probably... Every last person involved here went to hell for what they did. The false witnesses, the hand-picked counsel, the corrupt leaders. They're probably, every last one of them, in hell today, suffering for what they did to our innocent Savior. Better to have a millstone hung around your neck and cast into the sea than to offend or harm the least of these. Their cloak of righteousness, it fooled a lot of people, but it never fooled God. Not for one minute. Verse 67. Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him and smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? They hurled terrible abuses at the Lord. They humiliated him. They degraded him. They mocked him. They treated him like he was worthless. They spit at him. They foamed at the mouth with rage. The man who had told them that they had turned the temple into a den of thieves. The man who had told them that they were just a bunch of whited sepulcher hypocrites. The man who told them you're oppressing the poor and the widows and the needy. The one who had seemed to get so angry and took a whip to drive the moneylenders out of the temple. They hated Jesus for all of that. They hated him for every bit of it. And all that seething hatred for Jesus came up to the surface. That pent-up rage and hate came pouring out of them against an innocent man that had dared to tell them the truth. And after they got done beating and mocking and humiliating Jesus, they sent him off to the dungeon to spend the night. And there in that dungeon, our innocent Savior laid, suffering, waiting for what was to come next. Matthew 27. When morning was come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Their sham trial was over and it was time to get on with The dirty business of killing Jesus. They had to find someone, though, that was willing to actually do their dirty work. And so here they take him to Pontius Pilate. Verse 2, And when they bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. And if you would, just turn over to John chapter 18, and I'm going to pick up the story from there. John chapter 18. And starting at verse 28, 
Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas into the hall of judgment. And it was early, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. And again, I just here want to point out the corruption and hypocrisy of these men. You know, to them, holiness was just some outward thing. It's what you might call ritual holiness or yeah. symbolic holiness. And they were very, very concerned about that ritual symbolic holiness. And if they went into the judgment hall, well, then they would be symbolically defiled. So on one hand, they had all the symbols of holiness. But on the other hand, they were totally lacking in the real thing that those symbols were pointing to. That, that ritual holiness of the law was just a pattern. It was just symbolism pointing towards something greater that was to come. It was pointing towards a, a true holiness that would come from the heart. But these men had no understanding of true holiness. They only understood the symbolic and the ritual holiness. They were concerned about not defiling that symbolic and ritual holiness, but it never crossed their minds that they were already defiled by the murder that was in their hearts. That hatred of an innocent man, that desire to make someone else suffer, that lust for power that made them stomp out Jesus, they were already defiled. And they were not defiled with a ritual or a symbolic defilement, a symbolic uncleanness, like going into the judgment hall. Even worse, they were defiled with that genuine and that true uncleanness, the kind that comes from a wicked heart. These men were a long way down a wrong road. They were badly confused. They had confused the symbol with the genuine article. They were so wrapped up in the types and the patterns and the symbols, they had completely lost sight of what it was all pointing to. They confused the symbols with the genuine article. And Jesus had already told these men, if you went to Matthew 23, he preached a whole sermon to these very men right here, explaining these things to them. And this verse here demonstrates just how fundamentally these men misunderstood the Bible. And it's actually that very misunderstanding that allowed them to justify all the evil things that they did. That's why they couldn't let go of their incorrect and corrupt understanding of these things, because to admit that their whitewash was not good enough meant acknowledging that they had black and ugly hearts. Men who were no doubt abusive to their wives abusive to their children, guilty of all kinds of lusts and deviancy, <clears throat> hearts full of pride and arrogance, men who stole money from their churches, from their jobs, men who abused all kinds of people around them in the most disgusting ways. Their whitewash was there to fool themselves as much as anyone else because they were not prepared to admit what was really in their heart and in their lives. They had murder in their hearts, but their phylacteries were beautiful. <laughs> They're destroying an innocent man, but they paid tithe of mint and cumin. They fasted and prayed every week, but they devoured widows' houses. 
they had no concern at all with genuine holiness. They had omitted the weightier matters. They were only concerned with the symbols of holiness. And that's one more characteristic we see here with these wicked men. They have an obsession with ritual and symbolic holiness, yet they have a total lack of genuine holiness. And as a result here, Pilate has to go outside just to even talk with these men. Because they can't go in his palace without being symbolically, ritually defiled. Verse 29, Pilate went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. Now you catch here in this verse one of the last characteristics of these religious devils that we're going to look at tonight. And just catch how these men accuse Jesus to Pontius Pilate. They base this whole thing on their own reputations. Catch that? They base their whole authority of the accusation on who they are and their reputation. Our reputation is good enough that you should trust us, Pilate. Take our word for it, Jesus is a dirtbag. <laughs> you recognize there what they're doing? They're making a power play with Pilate. They're banking on their own authority and their own reputation on being able to push this thing through to get their way. And really that shows that they feel like they're above the law. They don't feel like they need to follow proper rules or proper channels. They think they deserve a special treatment. they got a special set of rules they can follow. They want Pilate to just dispense with the correct way of handling things. Let's just expedite this thing and get it over with. There's no need to investigate. Our word is good enough. Let's go ahead and kill Jesus. And maybe again, you think you ever met anybody like that? Mm -hmm. They make terrible accusations. They deal out harsh judgment. They have no evidence. And they expect you just to take their word for it because they're somebody. Mm. You know, and if anyone asks a question, they'll respond just like these men did to Pilate. If these things were untrue, do you think we would have said them? How dare you question us? This is just one more symptom of how corrupt these men are. You know, Jesus never got angry once when people came and asked him honest questions, did he? He was always willing to answer people. Even the ones who came tempting him, he answered them too. My. And I'll say it again. You know, if you ever see anyone carrying on like these murderers of Jesus... You got to get away from those people. They are dangerous. Men like that will bring you down with them. Because before this story is over, these religious leaders are going to drag the whole crowd along with them into condemning an innocent man. They're not going to stop until every single person around them has the blood of this innocent man on their hands. Because that's how evil systems work. They don't simply want to control you. They don't simply want you to go along passively. They want to turn you into their accomplices. And they do that because they feel like they need more people on their side to be justified. And the more accomplices they have, the better they feel about their crimes. But the truth is they're just dragging people to hell with them. My, that is what corrupt leaders are doing when they pressure the people around them to do dirty work, things that their consciences... Tell them this isn't right. 
They're turning people into their accomplices. And how many people do we know? Good people. Honest people. But they submit to pressure. They allow themselves to become accomplices to evil. They'll go along with wicked plots to destroy righteous people. And you know, God sees that. And one day there will be a reckoning. You can count on that too. And you know, as I bring this message to a close, I can understand why Jesus had the emotional experience he did in Gethsemane. Because this is not an easy thing he was facing. It's one of the hardest things anyone has ever done. In fact, I'll say it is the hardest thing that anyone has ever done. He was carried from judgment seat to judgment seat by evil men with no compassion, no love, and no mercy. Men who were bent on destruction. Men who were determined that nothing would get between them and their mission to destroy the innocent Holy One. And through all this, we've got a pretty good look at how corrupt these religious leaders were. They did evil, slimy things. And any reasonable person should just have been able to look at their methods, their mode of operation, their actions, their tactics, and realize they were corrupt and wicked men. Whether or not even they maybe knew what was right or what was wrong in the accusations, they ought to have just been able to look at their methods and know that is wrong. And you've got to be corrupt and wicked to act that way. And we see all of the things going on in the situation, a figure in the shadows secretly controlling the high priest, a mockery of justice, a verdict before they even have a trial. The whole council was already there arrayed waiting for him. It was all preplanned. And they excluded anyone who might have swayed things the wrong way. And they did their work under the cover of darkness, away from the crowd. They went out looking for false witnesses to use. They lied about Jesus. They twisted his words. And they only talked to him. The only reason they talked to him was to try and entice him to say something that they could use against him. And they condemned him for things he said privately to his friends. And they used Judas, someone close to him, someone who was willing to betray his confidence to get to him in the first place. And when he told them the truth, when Jesus told them the truth, they couldn't handle it. And they treated him with total disrespect, total dishonesty. And then they got angry at him because he refused to cooperate with them and legitimize their corrupt methods. These men were motivated by Satan because their actions were utterly ungodly in every respect. And how in the world could anybody in their right mind sit by and go along with what they did? You know, but before again, I say, before this thing is over, the whole multitude is going to be drug along with them. They are going to successfully turn everyone into accomplices. And you know, going with the crowd can be a very dangerous thing. There's lots of ways to judge the things you see, but you know, Jesus told us we can judge a tree by its fruit. All we got to do is hold up what we see and compare it to the Bible. Which patterns match up? Which template are they following? And if the shoe fits, you wear it. And if you see men following a wicked and a corrupt pattern, and you see bad fruit, you got every right to judge that thing as a bad tree, you know it? 
And it don't matter if it's the high priest. It don't matter if it's the temple in Jerusalem. There is no excuse. And God is not beyond tearing down entire systems and starting over. And the moment you think you're at the pinnacle, that God can't just cut you out and move on, then i got to say you've already cut yourself out. Because God won't work in a system that thinks that way. And that's exactly what has happened here with these evil men. They're Israel. They're the high priests. They're the means of redemption. God can't do without them. Really? And you know, when I think about how Jesus faced it all, when I think of how he suffered it all, you know, and I realize he did all of this for me. That means something to me. It speaks of the love that he has for me. A great love. A love that's nowhere to be seen in these accusers, but a love that was in his heart for me and you to put up with these things. A love that even through his capture was seeking to heal people. A love that refused to legitimize evil even when he's surrounded by it and pressured to. A love that was willing to suffer being lied about, abused, humiliated, and belittled if it would open eyes and set men free. A love that was far stronger than his desire to call the legions of angels to set him free. And when I think of all these things he had to go through to save me, it makes me want to live for him. It makes me want to live a life that will show people how wonderful my Savior is. It makes me want to live a life that walks in his footprints. A life that will point others to Jesus and to his amazing love. And so today we lift up the name of Jesus. We stand by his side. We put our faith in him and not in man. We're on the Lord's side. You know, and every tongue that will rise against us, we'll condemn it in Jesus' name. You know, that is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, says the Bible. And truly we are his servants. We're walking in his footsteps. And you know, that's been the title of these messages that I've been preaching the footprints of Jesus. Because I believe we're walking in his footsteps. And these things we've experienced, some of these things we've went through, we've been walking in the footprints of Jesus. That's exactly what we've been doing. Amen? That's why I've wanted to look at these things. Amen. Well, I'll, I'll close here in prayer. I praise the Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for being here with me tonight, Lord, to help speak these few words that you've given me, Lord. Take them, Lord, and Lord, let them be a benefit to your kingdom, Lord. Anything set out of the way, Lord, you just let that be swept aside, Father, Lord, and you let this thing be something that be helpful. Lord, my heart's desire is that souls be set free. Lord, my heart's desire, Lord, is that people would come to you in a knowledge of you, Lord. Let it be, I pray. Father, because you know there's no, there's no anger in my heart. There's no revenge in me, Lord. I want the love that you have. Lord, a love that can look at the ones abusing you on the side and love him. The one that can look at the thief and say, you'll be with me this day in paradise. The one who can say, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Lord, that's the love I want in my heart, Lord. That's the one that I want to exemplify. Lord, let it be in all of us, I pray. Give us strength for the days that lie ahead. Bless each one that's been here tonight and those listening online, Father. Bless all, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.